This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Putin's trying to sort of sell this to the Russian people as a sort of liberation campaign. How do you claim to be a liberator of a country that you're just annihilating? Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Dan McLaughlin, a journalist covering Eastern Europe for the Irish Times. Dan has been on the ground in Kiev covering the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This week, he left Kiev on a packed train bound for Lviv in the western part of Ukraine, which remains relatively calm. This is a special episode for me because in addition to Dan being a veteran foreign correspondent who has spent decades reporting from Eastern Europe and Russia, he also has the misfortune of being my uncle. I called up Dan on Friday to discuss what life is like in Ukraine right now for the people of Ukraine and reporters, what's next for Putin's invasion, and Russia's escalating crackdown on the press. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dan. Pleasure. Why don't you tell us where you are right now? So I'm looking out over Lviv, which is the main city in Western Ukraine. Um, it's about 500 kilometers from the capital, Kiev. Um, and this is a place, it's a beautiful old city, like classically sort of Central European, beautiful squares, cobbled streets, all pastel houses, great coffee shops. And at the moment it's very, uh, well, I won't say very, it's relatively quiet. There's been no bombing here, um, no fighting here. Um, but we have for the first time, maybe last night for the first time, we have heard air raid sirens. And we got another one this morning, but as far as I know, there haven't been any, um, any real threats of, of missile strikes or Russian aircraft coming anywhere close. So for, for, for now, this is the major uh, city in Western Ukraine that hasn't been touched by any of the fighting. It's also um, the place since this uh, invasion began last Thursday. It's become the kind of hub for people transiting from um, places in Ukraine that have been heavily affected by the fighting to Western Europe, because I'm only about 60 kilometers from the Polish border here. So there are thousands and thousands of people coming through every day on the trains and in cars, making their way towards central uh, towards European Union states, um, most of all Poland, which as I say is really close to here. You were telling me before we, we started recording that uh, your breakfast was actually interrupted by the air raid sirens uh, this morning. What, what was that like? Yeah, that was strange and ominous and, and really unpleasant, actually, because I was in Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine, very close to the Russian border when this began. Um, that Thursday morning, early, early morning Thursday, when the Russian president Vladimir Putin announced the invasion, that's where I was. So again, we got immediately then air raid sirens for the first time, mm. the sound of explosions on the edge of the city. Then I moved to Kiev. And I watched Kiev just basically empty out completely. Um, and there was this real, it really became a kind of eerie place, an eerie empty place with these sirens 
the bomb sirens going off and the sound of explosions on the edge of the city. Now to arrive here, it was such a relief when I got here yesterday morning on the train. And it was still a city where there was normal life. You know, the streets were full, the cafes were full. People were pretty much going about their normal business. And to, to have this happen now, to feel like the war is really coming here as it has to much of the rest of the country um, was, was really unpleasant. And of course, very, very scary for, for the locals as well. They've seen the horrible pictures from the rest of the country. To imagine this comes to their hometown is a really horrible thing. So it was a bit chilling to feel like this place, which has been kind of a safe haven so far, um, might not remain that way for very long. Yeah. You had an incredible story about leaving your, your apartment in uh, Kiev behind uh, this week uh, in the Irish Times. Could, could you tell us about that, that journey? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was rough and it was strange because I just didn't, you know, for like a couple of days I was, I was juggling. Do I go? Do I stay? What should I do? I got to know the two ladies who were living in my apartment block, the only two people who were still there. Mm. Like we spent a bit of the previous evening together when the air raid sirens were going off. So it was a bit tough to leave. Um, and then going out through the city, um, walking through the city, which as I say is now completely deserted. It's basically like a few TV crews around. It's a few people trying to get provisions in, nipping out in between these bomb sirens and before the curfew comes in in the evening. Um, and I had to walk through the city to one of the metro stations was closed. So I had to walk all the way to the train station and the train station was absolute pandemonium. Like the lights were switched off in the station. It was almost completely dark. There were thousands of people trying to get away from Kiev. Um, and like a, just a horrible crush for the trains, you know, when there's an announcement to a train, one was to Warsaw, and that was ideal for lots of people to get straight to Poland and safety. Mm. It was a horrible crush. You've got thousands of people in the near darkness, like kids getting lost, dogs like getting dragged away, just people going nuts, old people unable to kind of keep up with their relatives. Um, just a really horrible scene. Um, when you get down onto the state, onto the platforms, a lot of the trains are already full. The, the doors are locked from inside because people don't want anyone else coming on. I managed to find a train through weird luck. I managed to find a modern train heading to Lviv here in eastern, in Western Ukraine, which was almost empty at the time. I like bumped across the, the platform. I just had to go down onto the tracks and walk across, jump mm. up the other side and get onto the train. And, but I managed to find a spot in the kind of vestibule at the end of the carriage and then just watched it fill up like crazy. You know, everyone crushes on. You get the maximum amount of people in there. They opened up the toilet cubicles so people could go in there. Even the driver, the drivers have been amazing on these trains. Um, he even opened up his, his compartment and let some people in, let some oh, old wow. people into the driver's compartment to ride with him to get the absolute maximum people on there. Almost everyone standing, um, like kids and dogs and everything else, just kind of lying around on the floor, sleeping. And a, and a journey that usually takes like five and a half hours took 11 hours. Um, <laughs> So it was really, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Um, Is that just because and, the uh, train conductors are going so slowly to like avoid any problems or? Yeah, I th it, it is. Yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're taking slightly different routes to avoid right. potential hotspots. Mm -hmm. um, they've got so many people on the train that they can't go full speed. You know, if they have to slow down quickly, right. you know, loads of people who are standing could just kind of go flying. There flying. could be a horrible yeah. situation inside. Um, 
and yeah, I think it's just in, you know, basically basic precautions because of the war, because of the fighting. I think they're getting updates all the way as they go along, like what's happening in the next few miles, what's happening in the next few miles. Um, but having said that, there are big stretches of, of Ukraine between Kiev and here in, in uh, Western Ukraine where I am, which haven't had uh, any major problems yet. But um, I think through an, abundant, an abundance of caution, the drivers are just taking it easy. But as I say, these drivers have been amazing. Like they, they're still, picking up passengers and still going to places that have got bombing, that have got shelling. The, the night after I left, like the Kyiv main central station was, was hit by something quite close by. Um, and I said, to, I asked my, I wanted to talk to the driver after I arrived in Lviv and just kind of thank him and see what the journey had been like from his point of view. And he said, like, you know, he was kind of hanging out of the window, having a cigarette and said, yeah, it's totally fine, no problems. Um, I said, well, can you at least have a break? And he said, no, I'm turning around and going straight back to Kyiv. Wow. After after 11 hours at the controls. Yeah, so they're doing, you know, people like that are doing amazing work to kind of keep um, keep Ukrainian cities going as best they can at the minute. And what is the current state of the Russian invasion? Like, wh wh where does the, the military campaign stand right now? Um, well, it's really fluid. I mean, they've only, as far as I know, I mean, last time I checked, um, they've only taken really one major city. That's called Kherson, and it's down on the Black Sea coast. Um, they took that, I think, a couple of nights ago, and they seem to have held on to that. Um, they are bombarding Kharkiv very heavily. That's the second city. They're hitting areas on the outskirts of Kyiv, but not central Kyiv, um, as they've been doing for a few days now. There's a major port on the south coast called Mariupol, which is like heavily besieged, and the officials in that city which is very important. It's a strategic port. It's quite a big city. And it's also between this area in Eastern Ukraine that the Russian led separatists have controlled for a few years and Crimea, which of course Russia took over back in 2014. Right. So if Russia wanted to link up those two areas, it would have to go through Mariupol. So they're, they're, they're really fighting hard around that city. Um, but then the general picture, I mean, you see on maps like shaded areas where, um, and, and, you know, the, the, the broadcaster might say that these, these are areas controlled by Russia, but they're not really. It's like the, the, the Russians may have taken a town here and a town there, and they've taken this big city, Kherson, but there are big areas in between those towns that are still very fluid. Mm. Um, and Ukraine's, you know, as well as having its regular forces, it's now got a really big um, uh, territorial defense force, as they call it. They've handed out thousands of weapons to volunteers. Right. And you, we're seeing on social media now, these guys just popping up, like they're in civilian clothes. They've got like, you know, they might have a few machine guns, a rocket launcher, whatever else. And they're just like popping up on back, on back roads, in the countryside, in towns and villages. And they're just sort of taking pot shots at the Russians as they go by. Or like a Russian convoy will break down or run out of petrol. Um, and they will ambush it. So there are loads of areas. It's not like Russia has stable control mm. over big swathes of the country. They've basically got this area in the east that the separatists held since 2014. They've got Crimea, which they annexed. And they've got a few areas in the, in the north and the east and the south, kind of in between those main areas, where they have a kind of semblance of control. But it's a really fluid situation. Um, and as I say, the only big city that they've managed to take, it seems right now, is this one called Herson. Um, mm. Other than that, it's all, it's all, you know, it's moving very quickly. It's changing quickly. But the Ukrainian forces are, are putting up an amazing fight, it seems, all over the country at the minute. 
there seems to be a fear, at least among like American ana- analysts, that the Russian assault uh, is going to transition from what you might call the Crimea playbook when the Russian military took over uh, the peninsula in 2014 with not a lot of resistance, which I think is what Russia expected here. And that now that they've met more res- resistance from Ukraine than expected, there's a fear that Russia will, tr- will transition more to the Chechnyan model or God forbid the, the Syria model, which involves a lot more bombs and blood. Is that a fear on the ground there? Yeah, I think it definitely is. Um, I mean, when you look at the fighting on the ground, the Ukrainians have, have caused them immense problems. They've blocked mm. this massive convoy of armor coming in from the north. The losses are really, I mean, the Ukrainians say that Russia's lost something like 7,000 troops already. Well, Russia doesn't admit that. But Mm. Western sources are also saying that they see those kind of figures as being realistic. And that's huge for the Russians. And the Russians did come out a couple of days ago and admit that they'd lost 500 people in the first five days of fighting, five or six days of fighting. And that's that's quite a lot for them to admit, to come out and admit that. So it suggests that they are having major problems. Um, And we have definitely seen in the last couple of days a, a massive intensification of artillery bombardment. Um, artillery, missile strikes, bombs being dropped from the air on Kharkiv, on the edge of Kiev, on Mariupol, on um, a couple of other towns as well, um, which have had really heavy hits, killing mm. dozens of civilians. And it's clearly indiscriminate stuff. I um, saw some horrible footage last night on that was posted on Twitter of, of just like civilian apartment buildings just bombed out. And like a yeah, lot of absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's that's just utterly shocking to see that stuff, you know? I mean, I was one of the people who thought that, you know, because Putin's kind of trying to sort of sell this to the Russian people as a sort of liberation campaign, weirdly. Right. Um, and he still keeps making this claim that, you know, the Russians and Ukrainians are one people. If we were just given a chance to be friends again by the West, then everything would be fine. I kind of thought that that might prevent him from doing really horrible things here. Because how do you claim to be a liberator of a country that you're just annihilating? But that seems to have gone out of the window. I mean, thank God we haven't seen it in Kiev yet, but to see missiles landing right in the middle of Kharkiv, the second city, um, it's only 35 kilometers from the Russian border, a city with tons of like historical family, cultural connections to Russia. Um, That was really shocking. And it does suggest that um, the campaign as it goes forward, especially when they move away potentially from areas that have been historically much more closely linked to Russia. And they might move to places like this that have always been hostile to Russia and Moscow. I mean, it, it, I sort of, I dread to think really how how brutal the campaign could get because we're only what, like eight days into it or something now. And seeing the kind of footage that you mentioned last night, um, you know that's that's just that's just horrendous, horrific stuff. Um, and uh, you know it's 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 very hard to see Putin backing down from this and kind of lowering the level of intensity. And you know people obviously fear now that it's just going to get worse and worse as he moves across the country. I, when it comes to like the the Russian propaganda that we're seeing right now, I mean, I was watching a a, a video with um, Sergei Lavrov, the uh, the foreign minister. And referring to it as a special military operation and an attempt to denazify Ukraine, it's it's so out of touch with reality. I wonder if 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 Russians buy that at all. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, um, 
it's kind of been the, the message since Maidan, you know, since the revolution in 2014. Mm. You know, Russia said all the way that, you know, this is, this is fascists, this is neo-Nazis, these are ultra-nationalists, Russian haters taking over power in Ukraine. I mean, it was complete rubbish. I mean, you still walk around Kiev and Kiev and you hear as much Russian almost as you hear Ukrainian. Um, you know, so many of the people defending Ukraine with their lives now are Russian speakers. Naturally, that's their first language. And they're not being oppressed at all in Ukraine. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, you know, the president himself, President Zelensky, speaks Russian, speaks much better Russian than he speaks Ukrainian. <laughs> um, and he's from a Jewish family, by the right. way. So, you know, the, the whole idea that this is some nazi puppet state or something is is just bizarre but it is something that has been pushed by russia for uh eight years now and you know as we see this crackdown on free speech independent media activists opposition groups in russia which has now reached a level that is that is unprecedented since the end of the soviet union it is very very hard for ordinary russians to get information from other sources because you know foreign news sites are blocked um a couple of the, the kind of bastions of liberal independent media um in russia were shut down in the last couple of days mm. uh, the echo Moscow radio station and, and the tv station dodged they closed down yesterday literally um so you know i don't know if people really believe it um but the thing is people i think a lot of people just close their eyes to what might really be happening I mean, right. it's very interesting when you talk about Russian propaganda because people generally go along, like the mass of people generally go along with the Kremlin line. They just go along with it. Mm. But if we take an example like the pandemic recently, you know, and Russia was trying to push people to take the, um, the Russian-made vaccines, Sputnik. And then when it came to something that touches their lives, which is absolutely crucial, touches upon their own health and their own well-being and that of their own family and loved ones, they did not want to touch this vaccine. And they simply did not go out and use it. Mm. And in that case, it showed when it was something very important to their own lives, they did not believe the state propaganda. But when it's something that's at a distance like Ukraine, when it's something that they can turn, turn a blind eye to, um, they will do it. A lot of people will do it and they will just go along with the line because it's the line of least resistance and it's the least right. dangerous line to take. Um, and that's the thing, you know, when you look at surveys and stuff now coming out of Russia, yeah, I don't really trust them because it's a country in which people know, they know what the right answer is. They know what the safe answer is. Mm. They know not to take any risks. So um, whether they be really believe it or not is hard to say, but um, at the moment that the... the the crackdown is so hard that it's it, it it's hard to imagine like major protests doing anything to rock the right. Putin regime on the subject of Ukraine right now. Now, there's a debate in the states at least as to whether Putin is a madman who's lost all perspective, which seems dubious to me, or whether he is a strategic genius who's acting within Russia's interests here, uh, or you know acting along this long-running vendetta that he's had. Um, I don't want to ask you to try and get inside that man's head but what do you think of him and what he's doing here like what is what is he what is he thinking i think he's got to a point where he feels like he has nothing to lose he thinks that the west is going to be against him forever anyway that there are going to be sanctions against russia anyway 
um, whatever he does. And he thinks now is the time to move against Ukraine because he thinks the West is divided. He thinks Biden is potentially weak. He sees Merkel has just left office. He doesn't think Macron is any great shakes and he's got an, got a, um, an election coming up which might play on his mind. You know, Brexit has taken Britain out of the EU and Boris Johnson's got his own worries. So I think he saw division all over the place and thought this is a time to go for it. Ukraine is going away from Russia inevitably. Mm. And I think probably in his calculations, he thought, um, we I'm risking less by trying to take Ukraine now rather than waiting another 10 years when it's even further away from us. It's a stronger, more stable state. Its connections with the West are deeper and stronger. So let's do this now. Um, but hearing the justifications from him, you know, this whole thing about denazification, um, the way he talked about the Ukrainian leadership as neo-Nazis and drug addicts, um, the way he just kind of basically just tore apart a lot of the top Russian officials and security officials when he sat them down for this Security Council meeting and basically made them stand up one by one and say that they supported um, recognizing the independence of these little separatist statelets in Donetsk and Lugansk in, the, in Eastern Ukraine. I mean, this was like a whole new level of madness. It was like, um, um, what was it? Dr. Strangelove stuff, you know? Um, yeah. Really quite, quite chilling. Um, and now to see people who, I think in the West, people suspected maybe there are some people who wouldn't accept, and even in the Russian leadership, they wouldn't go along with the most extreme scenarios. Like Sergei Lavrov, maybe the foreign minister, like Dmitry Medvedev, who was a former prime minister and president and was kind of a liberal a few years ago. Maybe even like Dmitry Peskov, who's the main spokesperson for Putin. But they're all following this increasingly radical, strange, um, sinister line, um, which is just kind of sent up, you know, what they're doing now effectively is just um, doubling down and doubling down on what they've done because there is, Putin, Putin and the people around him, the closest people around him are, basic, are basically closing off all the, all the doors to other options. Um, and one thing that I worry about now actually is that I think they realize that th this cannot have widespread support, real widespread support in Russia. Because Russian, ordinary Russian people always had good relations with Ukrainian people. There, as I say, there are so many connections with family and friends that somehow I believe that a lot of Russians will figure out what's going on here and it will be on some level horrible for them to, to, to uh, come to that realization. And I worry what Putin will do to try and kind of rally the country behind it. And even though, you know, up until this point, I thought it's impossible that Putin would take on NATO because he would never, he could never win that war. Mm. Um, now I just wonder, you know, this, this criminal regime, which it is now, um, I, 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 just, I just fear like how much of the world they are willing to take down to try and save their own skins. Um, and I don't want to be alarmist about that, but um, seeing what they're doing to Ukrainian cities, I, di I didn't think I would see that kind of level of destruction in Ukrainian cities. Um, and 
now I do, as I say, I do, I do worry what they will try to do on a propaganda level to make this a kind of, to turn this war into sort of a national cause. And one of the only ways they could do it is by making this a war of Russia against the West. So I, I do worry a bit that uh, how far they are now willing to go to try and save their own skins, as I say. Um, I don't know, we'll have to, I, you know, lots of people, people who had their own ideas of how far Putin would go, have had to like radically redraw those lines several times just in the past 10 days or two weeks. Right. Um, so the pace of change and the pace at which we're having to reevaluate what Putin's capable of is really, is really quite scary at the minute. And the, the, the sort of grim thing about all of this is that even as we're watching uh, Ukraine put up an incredible uh, effort to resist against the invasion and the Russian campaign seems to be struggling, there's an assumption among some analysts that the victory over Ukraine is almost inevitable. Do you, do you agree with that? I mean, just in terms of sheer sort of force of numbers and what Putin might be willing to, to do, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, well, I think we can look at it in two ways. I mean, probably, using a, a, an enormous level of cruelty and brutality and violence, Putin could, could subdue, at least for a while, a lot of the country. But we have to keep in mind the scale of Ukraine. It's a really big country. It's the biggest country that is solely in Europe. Um, more than 40 million people in this country. So the, the, the scale of an occupation force to try and subdue and keep control over this enormous country where effectively, every, you know, almost everyone in the country hates you now and an enormous amount of people are willing to do a hell of a lot to take on your forces and to kill members of a Russian occupation force. Um, I just don't know if he has the logistical capability to do that. I also don't know if the Russian forces themselves, even though they're doing, you know, horrible things from afar, with missiles and with bombs, you know, I don't know how willing the average Russian soldier is to shoot someone who looks like him, speaks in his language, you know, is very like the people he knows from home. Right. When we see we see Russians being captured by the Ukrainians, Ukrainians are giving them tea, they're looking after them, they're treating their wounds, they're giving them food, and they're talking, and you know, this is like neighbor talking to neighbor, and they're screaming at them saying, how could you come to our land and do this? Um, so, I th you know, in lots of ways, practical ways and the kind of in terms of the morale of the troops, the Russian troops that would be expected to, you know, massively suppress resistance in a country like Ukraine. I don't know if that is practically possible, even for um, a military and police force that is as big as the one that Putin can muster. And, you know, the last time we saw that sort of dynamic, I feel like, was Syria, where Assad and uh, his supporters, their rallying cry was Assad or we burn the country to the ground. And unfortunately, they ended up basically flattening almost all of Syria with the exception of Damascus. Uh, hopefully, Putin doesn't have that same uh, sort of idea for, for Ukraine. Uh, it doesn't seem like that he, he's willing to do that. Um, but I, I do want to ask about uh, the media presence in uh, Ukraine, like what kind of media presence is there now? Are all the foreign correspondents and local press sort of huddled together in the same hotel? Are they all in the same cities or is it pretty much spread out throughout Ukraine? 
they're in, I would say, you know, four or five major cities. So I was in Kharkiv. I mean, I'm just staying in like Airbnb still, you know, it's where right. the Airbnb still working. I'm getting little flats and, um, but I've, you know, obviously I've got friends in the, in the big hotels who are working for, you know, newspapers or TV and things. So I'll pop in and see them. And yeah, I mean, you walk into the big main hotel in Kharkiv, there's only one big, nice hotel in Kharkiv and it was full of, um, international press. Um, and then in Kiev, I would say there are probably three big hotels where people are gathered and they've got their live spots there and they're doing everything from the balconies and you'll see the same views and things. And, you know, they've got their military, ex-military kind of security advisors there with them telling them what's safe, what's not, checking things out and things. Um, and here in Lviv, I would say there are probably three hotels where most of the foreign press are. Um, so yeah, people are concentrated like that. There will also be some in Odessa, which is the main city in the south. But I would say those are the, those are the main ones. And certainly, you know, more people gathered in Kiev, and then there was a big move out of Kiev. Most people getting in cars and finding their way out. Um, was that because so, it, it got too dangerous there? Yeah, it got too dangerous. I mean, there was, you know, I mean, I, I think you'll still see. I still see like, you know, the BBC and CNN broadcasting from there. And I think, you know, some of the big papers still have people there, but lots of people got out. Um, so now, you know, I was just up on the main square here in Lviv, um, which is beautiful. Um, mm. And uh, there's still life there, you know, people are still going about and having their coffees and their lunches and things. But, you know, there are three or four different live spots there and they're doing their work. Um, so this has become a real hub. I see the BBC's broadcasting from here because I think the people in, in Kiev, not only are they really tired because they've been working around the clock for days and days, but they're also having to spend more time in shelters and stuff because it's, um, it's a bit sketchy. Um, mm. but, uh, but I have to say as well, I mean, I don't know if it's of interest, but you know, as, as if like people in the media are listening, maybe it is, but you know, I found like I was staying, as I mentioned, in Kharkiv in an Airbnb, just living with locals and in Kiev too. And being with them and, and you know, they weren't going anywhere. They were at home. Right. They were just trying to figure out how best to live, get their food, get their water, see their friends, see their relatives, try and keep some normality, get out for a walk. Like being with them, I was much calmer than when I would bump into or go and meet like parts, parts of the journalist crew who were around. Because, you know, it was all a bit frantic. They were all thinking, have we left it too late? Should we leave? Should we stay? What are we going to do next? There was this kind of, you know, this sort of nervous tension always in that bubble. Um, so I always came back from those meetings a bit more with my nerves a bit more frazzled than they'd been right. before. So I, I, you know, I very much preferred getting back and just kind of hanging around in a local flat. You know, with locals who were often, often those people, they weren't even going down into, often they didn't have a basement that could be safe for them. Mm. So they were just like getting together and spending time in what they thought was like a safer flat, maybe on it a is lower. As low down as possible in the apartment On a lower building. floor, yeah. Right. So they get together, they bring their dogs and their cats in, someone would bring a bottle of wine and they would, you know, sort of look after each other and, and uh, look out for each other, which was, which was really nice. So um, again, I have to say the Ukrainians have just been amazing in their spirit, in their solidarity, in their sense of wanting to help each other out. And they're doing it in a big way here in Lviv now with all these um, displaced people coming in, the volunteers, I, I don't know if you're, listeners are interested but i wrote a story on this for the irish times today which will be, be up in a few hours on on the website about young people joining the volunteer effort to 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 help people who have been displaced but also getting ready to fight you know people are um getting ready to do whatever they can putting their young people putting their plans on hold 
to um, to help the country in any way they can right now. Mm. Have you had any encounters with troops yet, either Russian or Ukrainian? I haven't seen any Russian troops, and there are, there are no Russian troops around uh, in um, at least the, no. I mean, there aren't any in Kiev, as far as I know. Um, and um, just on, they only reach the outskirts of Kharkiv, and they keep being beaten back by the Ukrainian right. forces. Um, so no, I mean, I've had encounters with. Uh, with the Ukrainian security guys who are increasingly nervous. I mean, I've been stopped a few times and, you know, they're, they're, they're now operating with guns drawn because the, the, the scary thing for them in Kyiv is that they've got intelligence that um, before this started, the Russians sent a lot of, uh, you know, operatives of dif different types into, into Kyiv and other cities to kind of prepare for attacks on high-profile figures, including Zelensky, the president, to attack uh, high-profile sites, strategic sites, and just to do things that would kind of undermine people's morale, um, undermine Ukraine's ability to cope with the invasion and things like that. So they're very edgy about people, um, in Kiev at least, they were very edgy about people kind of walking around who might be suspicious. You know, I was stopping and like chatting to people with my phone out and things. And, you know, a couple of guys came up to me on Saturday, I think it was, and said, you know, we're security service guys, what are you doing? And while one of them kind of asked the questions, the other one stood back and like covered us with his pistol. Wow. Which was quite freaky. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, can I, it was, you know, I was thinking afterwards, I was thinking, have I just been watching too many like Hollywood films? Because <laughs> I'm like, hands up, can I reach into my pocket? Or <laughs> he's like, yeah, of course, get your, get your effing passport out. <laughs> so I like, reached in and got it out. And then he was, he, he was fine after that. But I turned to the two local ladies I was speaking to, and they were completely calm. I was like, isn't it, isn't it weird for you to get stopped by like a guy with a gun on your street? And they're like, we're at home. Right. We're defending our place. We're ready for anything. Like, you know, we don't feel we've got anything to be scared of. And weirdly, yeah. when I was leaving Kiev, the story I, I told you about going to the train station, that same guy stopped me again going to the train station. And I didn't recognize him because by that time, he was not in plain clothes anymore. He was in full camouflage, had a helmet on. And instead of carrying his handgun, he was carrying a Kalashnikov. Wow. And he said to me, like they stopped me and I was going through, like he was with three or four other guys uh, on, on the square, Maidan Square in Kiev at that time. And I was going through with my bag. And uh, I said again, like, I like, probably put my hands up again like an idiot and said, oh, can I? Yeah, sure, guys, check my bag. And he said, and he said to me, I, you're, I, he just said, Irish, Irish, you're Irish, right? I'm like, how the hell do you know? And he remembered <laughs> from, and he like lifted his helmet a bit. And I was like, Jesus uh. Christ, you're the guy that stopped me the other day and checked my passport. And the day, and last time when he stopped me on the, on the Saturday, he said, okay, Irish friend. Okay, go, you're all right. Um, and he remembered. So we like had a handshake and he wished me luck and sent me on my way. So, you know, it's weird, Aiden. It's so weird to have these experiences in a place like Kiev, which I've been to so many times. I've spent tons of time there. I lived there for a while. And I just have great memories of that place of being a wonderful city. So much great stuff going on. It's such a such a fun, cool, interesting place to be. Um, and for it to suddenly empty out like that and just be full of guys who are really on edge, fearing attack. You've got these rumbles from the edge of the city. You've got the air raid sirens going off streets are deserted it's just horrible to hor really horrible to see that
Now, you've reported from Kiev, but you've also reported from all around Eastern Europe and Russia. Could you run us through your, your career as a, as a foreign correspondent? Sure. Um, so much. Good Jesus, it's long now. I mean, you're, 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 put, you're putting me through the ringer. Uh, well, going back like 20 years, I first started, I came out of university. I went to Poland. I worked as a freelancer for like six months in Poland. Then I got, um, I got a job with Reuters. So I was, in, I was with, um, with Reuters in London, then in Moscow. Then I went freelance, or I just like took off for a while. I went to Cuba for a bit and had a, just a wonderful time there. Ran out of money, of course, before that. Novel not a lot of work, 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 working in Cuba. <laughs> not, not a lot, not a lot. And that novel that I was working on, of course, didn't sell. Sure. Shock of shock of shocks. Um, so I had to get you know, like a paying job again. So I came back back to London, did a bit of work in London, then went back to Russia. You know, because that was I studied Russian. I did like East European studies, so that was kind of my place. Went back to Russia, worked as a freelancer, worked for the Daily Telegraph, worked for the Irish Times then, got my first work with the Irish Times. Then I moved to Budapest and, and sort of spread out to cover Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and I was doing work for all kinds. You know, I did, I was from, like for most of the British broadsheets, I've done stories at different times. You know, the, the Guardian, the FT, the Independent, the Observer, I did stories for at different times. But gradually over time, like the Irish Times has just become my really solid, um, solid uh, solid source of work mm. um i've had a series of great foreign editors um who've given me lots of freedom to do work they've been really interested in eastern europe all these years um and they've backed me up to do loads of things so now i'm basically just doing work for them still you know with, as much as i'm based anywhere i'm based in budapest although i'm traveling a, a, a lot of the time um and i just did a big trip like at the back end of last year i had three months in russia Mm. visiting sort of 12 cities or so or more maybe all over the country you know from um from the baltic sea to the pacific down to the caucasus the black sea up to the arctic i finished off in the arctic that was an amazing trip and again like the irish times backed it and uh, i don't think there are that many papers that would do it now you know right. to send a correspondent off on a big trip major project gave me loads of space in the paper um well it's, it's good to so, hear that print is is alive and well in ireland <laughs> it is i mean we're shifting of course like everyone more and more to digital but still right. um What's great about it is it still has a really big focus on foreign news. Um, mm. And as far as I know, it's the only the only Irish publication that has a, a really solid network of foreign correspondents. Right. Um, you know, the States, Brussels, Berlin, um, China. I think we've got someone all over the place. So um, what, yes. what is it? What is it like uh, reporting in Russia? Is it I mean, what is it like? I mean, you lived in, in Moscow for for a mm -hmm. long time. Like, what, what is it like reporting in Russia, reporting under Putin? It's much tougher now than it was. Um, and, you know, again, you know, we talked about how this, you know, even though people knew kind of that Russia was already authoritarian, really, I mean, even the last 10 days, it's taken several steps down. You know, it's really going into massive, massive repression now. So you know, literally in the, in the last few days, dozens probably of journalists have left the country because, um, because of this, the, the effect of this war and the crackdown that is taking place to, to silence any kind of, not just dissent, but any genuine, accurate, honest reporting about the war. Um, you can now be put in jail for 15 years if you report in a way that the authorities see as inaccurate. Mm. 
as regards this war. You're not allowed to call it a war in Russia. It's, it only has to be, I think, the, the term that you mentioned earlier, like a special military operation. You right. can't call it an invasion. You can't call it a war. You can't tell Russian readers or the world that Russia is the aggressor. Um, so it's really terrifying. So it's very, very tough. I mean, it's not just that you won't get your story out. You could literally go to jail and, and Russian reporters are being put in jail. I mean, it's been tough for years for Russian reporters compared to foreign correspondents. Um, and it's been particularly tough, for example, for people in local press around Russia, because they were always, you know, if they were exposing corruption, then they were always in danger of being physically attacked. You know, local journalists have been beaten up and even killed for their work for years. Um, it's only more recently that you're starting to see uh, pressure come to bear on big foreign publications, you know, like Sarah Rainsford from the BBC was kicked out not very not long ago. Um, I think there was a guy from the Danish press was kicked out, the German press. Deutsche Welle has now been banned. The big German broadcaster has now been, has been forced to shut down in Russia. So, you know, it's an incredibly bleak picture, you know, far, far worse than when I was there. I was lucky in a way when I was there at the back end of last year because I didn't have to have too much to do with officials. You know, I had my mm. accreditation. So if anyone asked for it, I could show that I was there with permission um, doing my doing my work. But because I was out in the regions, it tends to be a little bit easier out in the regions. You don't come under quite as much scrutiny uh, as a foreign correspondent as you do in Moscow. Um, Did you feel a, scrutiny when you were in Moscow? Not too much. I was going to say this kind of a, um, I think probably every, for every country's press, there's a kind of minder at the Russian foreign ministry. So I had a guy who looked out for probably, I don't think he could have done the American press, but I think he did, did British press. And, you know, not many Irish correspondents end up in Russia. So I think, you know, I just got kind of lumped in with the British press. Mm. So he was the one who kind of put through the accreditation request. He met me and gave me my accreditation card. And of course, when he does that, he kind of gives you a bit of a pep talk. And he tries to keep it all pally, but at the same time, he's clearly sending you a message like, you know, there are several things that you, we'd prefer if you didn't go near these subjects, you know, like, like corruption, like right. rigged elections, like Navalny, mm. um, this kind of thing. But, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't lay it on too thick. Um, uh, but again, a few times when I was out in the regions, he did kind of check on me. And, right. you know, he, he would couch it, look, maybe he was being genuine when he said, hi, Dan, I'm just checking on where you were because COVID is getting worse. So I'm just checking that you're not in an area with high COVID incidents, something like that. It's very maybe nice he would, Exactly. Maybe he was genuinely worried that I wasn't wearing my mask. Or maybe he was just checking on what I might be looking at in Siberia or right. the Far East or the Arctic or somewhere else. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, I have to say, at the time, it was an amazing trip, and I, I, had, a, I had a great experience meeting regular Russians, mm -hmm. many, of the, many of whom are absolutely appalled by what Russia is turning into. Um, but again, like the Russia of even today, speaking to you in February, is not the Russia of December when I was last there. It's much, much darker already. Mm. And it's getting darker, I mean, unfortunately, by the hour, without any exaggeration. I mean, there's a, there's a, a session of... Of I think it's the upper house of parliament today in 
in Moscow. And, you know, people are worried that they might introduce a state of emergency, uh, even martial law. And so, like I mentioned, lots of people who don't agree with the Putin regime have been getting out any way they can in the last 24, 48 hours, driving out, getting on trains, flying out. I'm looking at like social media posts from Moscow today. And people are saying it's got to the stage where friends are ringing around like, are you still here? <laughs> because that kind of liberal Moscow community is just emptying out. I know several people who've left in the last few days and they're taking bags and they don't know when they're going to be back because they're just seeing seeing what was already a pretty horrible regime turn into an absolute monster. Yeah. Uh, so do you have any sense of what you're going to be doing next over the next couple of weeks? Are you planning on staying in Lviv or do you, is there, is there another part of the country or leaving the country that you plan on going to? Yeah. You know, I just don't know. Aiden. Um, like the idea was to get here from, <laughs> to get out of Kiev and get here somehow. Right. So I got, got here. And then of have course a- there are, there are stories here and I haven't really had a chance to think what's next. I mean, mm. I've got a colleague, Lara Marlowe, who is trying to get in today, I think. So we might do some kind of handover or we'll definitely at least meet and figure out how we can best use um, use the fact that there, there are gonna be two of us here. Um, I don't know whether it's time for me to go out and take a bit of a break mm. or to figure out where I can go. I mean, unfortunately the areas that are safe are, you know, that, that they're diminishing as well, you know? Right. Um, so we'll see, I mean, the, the 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 workload has been really heavy it's been you know like writing a feature writing a news story doing a podcast or something taking photos and trying to get those to the paper and stuff so it's only tomorrow really i, I tend not to work on a saturday because you know we don't I'm, i still have this kind of print idea we don't have a print version on sunday so right. saturday tends to be at least a quieter day so i'll kind of like lie in bed probably with a bottle of booze and think <laughs> and try and try and think uh try and think somewhat clearly about where i should go next you know i don't know right now i don't know i'm just trying to get through friday <laughs> right it's <laughs> admirable uh, yeah. well do do stay safe dan and, and thanks so much for for talking to me great to speak to you cheers Amy. thank you for listening to this episode of the interview Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check out more coverage of my conversation with Dan on Mediaite.com. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.